Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast, the show that focuses on the worlds of digital and physical coming together uh, of making everything intelligent uh, and uh, bringing uh, meaning to IoT. We try and bring together guests that will uh, make us all smarter, learning about uh, significant technologies, significant significant companies, significant applications. Uh, this week's episode is unusual. We're focusing on circularity, sustainable fashion. Why would we do that? Uh, the, the reason is uh, a massive amount of our resources are focused on making clothing, uh, and there's a huge amount of pollution and waste that come about that. It's clearly, fixing this is clearly one of the areas which is a big opportunity for IoT. Uh, and if we're going to address this area, we need to understand it. To that end, uh, we've got Tom Cridland, who is a Renaissance man. He's eclectic. He is a fashion designer. Just bought one of his items of clothing, in fact. Uh, and he's focused on clothing that lasts 30 years. I think it's really interesting to understand this uh, as a baseline to then understanding how technology could revolutionize this area. So if you have an interest in circularity, if you want to see the end of fast fashion, uh, you want to understand how our lives are going to change, then please listen to Tom Cridland. And by the way, you're going to get a lot of music as well. One of the things that distinguishes this podcast is our love of music. Uh, we try and bring a bit of humanity to IoT in that way. Uh, and Tom is an amazing musician uh, and a podcaster as well. Very gifted young artist. Please enjoy this interview with Tom Cridland. The Mr. Beacon Podcast is sponsored by Williot, intelligence for everyday things, powered by IoT Pixels. Well, Tom, thanks so much for joining the podcast. You're a very unusual guest for us here on the Mr. Beacon Podcast. We don't, we talk a lot about music, but we don't normally have musicians on, certainly uh, not ones who uh, have got tours uh, uh, on, on the books and uh, have got uh, this amazing repertoire that you have uh, so uh, and, and the amazing contacts that you have. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you uh, about that. But really, the reason why you're here is to talk about circularity, uh, sustainable fashion, which uh, I believe has um, a direct relationship with Internet of Things technology. So the plan is... We're going to talk a bit about your fashion line and some of the unusual things that you're doing in sustainability. Then we're going to talk about IoT and where um, fashion and uh, sustainability and IoT can come in. And then I I've got a ton of questions I want to ask you about all of the interviews you've done with um, Annie Lennox, Smokey Robinson, <laughs> Nigel Olson, uh, Michael Imperioli. Who that was an amazing interview that you did on your. Uh, uh, podcast, uh, Greatest Music of All Time. So long intro, but first of all, thanks for, for joining the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. Um, so you're a musician, but you have a 
fashion line. How did that happen? Well, the fashion line came first. I started that when I graduated from university. I was very keen to avoid life in a corporate job, in a nine to five job. In a way, I envy those people because it started off uh, with me wanting to sort of do no work and continue drinking and having a bit of a laugh like I did at university. Uh, and the whole point was to not work corporate hours. Here we are uh, a few years later and I work corporate hours, uh, but I do love it. Uh, at least to uh, a large extent. And uh, and so, you know, I would say to anybody who's looking to do something entrepreneurial for the reasons of spending less time working, it doesn't quite work that way. Almost the nine to five probably is the option that you could take uh, where you do the least work. Uh, but so that's that was my motivation for uh, pursuing a career in fashion. It was not because I'm some kind of do-gooder uh, or some kind of person who started out with a huge interest in sustainability and i decided to to make my to pivot my back my brand started off uh, specializing in making trousers it was a bit like spoke um the fashion brand that specializes in uh making trousers that are of a perfect fit apart from you know i wasn't backed by venture capitalists so i didn't have lots of funding i had a six grand startup loan and no expertise so it was like a bad version of spoke but i will say that i was the first trouser expert not spoke uh and uh and so that was what it was first and then i thought okay i need to do something more interesting than just making colorful chinos also with my posh accent it didn't quite give off the right vibe it looked like i was a hurrah henry uh, going to regattas all the time um it didn't really uh give off a great impression so that's why i became interested in sustainability and i wanted to come up with something that was really eye-catching that would get me lots of media attention publicize the brand and I also wanted to emphasize how interested I was in the idea of not changing your wardrobe too often, not shopping at Primark, because it's more expensive to shop that way, just buy something every week and then throw it away. Uh, and you look worse, you, you don't look as smart as if you just buy something a bit better quality and keep it for longer. Um, so I didn't want to reinvent the wheel. I didn't have the budget to do stuff like there. Another brand uh, to talk about would be like Pangea, because they're like, they're really doing a lot of interesting things with materials. Uh, I don't have the budget to do that again. So I'm not like a great scientific innovator. So I wanted, but I wanted to find a way to stand out in the sustainability uh, area of fashion because at that time, it, this was 2015 before these brands had come along. Um, and so that's where I came up with this idea of the 30 year sweatshirt and then the whole 30 year clothing collection, uh, guaranteeing the item of clothing for 30 years encourage people to keep the item of clothing for longer, uh, show that we're committed to making quality items of clothing. And it's simple. It, it just requires us to pledge uh, to repair the item if anything happens to it. And hopefully, you know, as the brand continues to grow, I mean, we're still independent, but as it continues to grow, hopefully we can get better and better at doing it. So much to talk about here. So I want to tweezer apart a number of the things that you have um, raised, hopefully without damaging the garment. Um, uh, let's start off with why sustainable fashion? I mean, uh, isn't fashion to be fashionable? Doesn't it have to change constantly? Yeah, well, I'm not a very good businessman. Uh, and I, you know, I hadn't quite appreciated that uh, for a start. Uh, you know, I don't think fashion, I don't think seasonal fashion is ever going to stop. Uh, I think that's quite unlikely. Uh, hopefully there are going to be some ways around that. I, you know, I think it's quite unrealistic that we're all going to keep everything that we own for 30 years. That's not what I'm suggesting here at all. But I'm just saying if you've got a plain navy sweatshirt or a plain white T-shirt or a plain pair of, you know, navy chinos, beige chinos, like those items that can kind of go with anything more jazzy that might be more seasonal, you might as well buy those really good quality items and keep them for longer, have those more sustainable cornerstones of your wardrobe. And then with the more jazzy stuff, you know, again, invest in higher quality. And when it comes to if, you know, if you're if you're shopping for seasonal fashion, you should probably have some money in the bank. You know, I'd, I I haven't really had the opportunity to go into ex expensive fashion uh, stores all the time and like shop for the, for the latest wares every season. But a lot of those brands where it's like really kind of high fashion, um, recycling and reselling that stuff is actually possible. You know, like people really do want to buy vintage Gucci or vintage Saint Laurent or that type of stuff. Uh, it's essentially the only part of the fashion market that I think 
should have no future is Primark and mass produced like crappy clothing. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I guess the, the thing that I'm getting at is the damage that that causes. I mean, the level of pollution that comes from the production of pro, uh, for, uh, clothing is really significant, isn't it? All of the dyes, the chemical wastes, the, the, the whole carbon footprint of creating something. And if you're then essentially throwing it away, or to be frank, just not wearing it. I mean, you're like constantly buying cheap stuff, which has, we talk about sustainable fashion in terms of the physical lifetime of the garment, but there's also emotional sustainability. I, 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 I think I'm probably a little bit older than you. And I have to confess, I do have 30-year clothing in my uh, wardrobe. And um, the reason it's there is I love it. And it's kind of becomes part of you. And uh, it's sort of, you know, maybe not particularly fashionable, but I just enjoy going back, seeing these old uh, photographs of a favorite jacket or, or, or something like that, that as accumulated memories. And so I think there's some real benefits to having emotional sustainability, building your own brand. Um, and I think the really cool thing is that entrepreneurs like yourselves can actually charge more for something that is better. And we can get more joy out of clothing that is well-made. We can spend a little bit of a bit extra and buy a little bit less. And at the same time, uh, we're causing less pollution and uh, the whole production process is less exploitative as well. I mean, this cheap stuff does not come without a cost. It comes at uh, the cost of all of the workers who are in sweatshops because the people that make this stuff can't afford to pay them well. So I'll get off my soapbox and we can get back onto yours uh, or at least your platform. That's very interesting. Um, so how do you make a sustainable, but what's the difference between something that's sustainable and something that's not sustainable? Well, I think a lot of fashion was already sustainable before I came up with this idea. The novelty of the idea was the 30 year guarantee. Uh, I haven't come up, as I said, you know, there are companies like Pangea, I think, and, and, and others mm -hmm. come up with more innovative, uh, design techniques. But that said, you know, we use organic cotton, uh, recycled polyester, uh, we we make the clothing in the United Kingdom. We used to make it in Portugal and we just make it to a very high standard and then if anything happens to it, we repair it, we stitch it up, we don't throw it away. I mean, it's a pretty simple concept. It's not, you could probably walk into, you know, brands that I was talking about, you know, Gucci or wherever else on the sort of proper expensive high street and their sweatshirts would probably last you 30 years as well. I mean, probably some of those very expensive brands the sweatshirts would also be quite cheaply made, but I think most of the most high quality stuff will last for that long. It's just I, I wanted to put up my hand and say, you know, our stuff will last for 30 years. We're prepared to back it. Uh, it's going to be cheaper than than like Sunspell. It's going to be cheaper than the than stuff that costs hundreds of pounds. It's a more reasonably priced uh, type of high end fashion. It's not as cheap as Primark and Zara. Uh, mm -hmm. and we're going to make it to the highest quality that we can. Uh, you know, and double reinforce all the sleeve seams and, and you know, do extra things to try and stop uh, wear and tear, stop the running of dyes, uh, etc. But at the end of the day, it's it's about us saying that we're making the best clothing that we can and we're prepared to provide you with a warranty uh, that underlines that that kind of approach to, to fashion, treating it as sustainable, um, and kind of going against the grain in terms of that fast fashion culture that's become more prevalent. Well, making your clothing in England is pretty unusual. It used not to be unusual. It used to be standard, but now obviously China is is the place that most people go to because uh, and and other developing countries. Um, how did you go about finding someone to make your clothing? It, was it fun? Uh, did, have, you, have you, or, or just a lot of hard work? Uh, it was, it was quite fun. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, particularly. It wasn't like the worst thing that we've ever had to do. Uh, I enjoyed making the clothing in Portugal, uh, but sadly Brexit put a stop to that. Uh, 
you know, I'm half Portuguese. That's interesting. So I really enjoyed uh, working with Portuguese suppliers. I mean, Portugal's a wonderful place to make clothing, but, uh, you know, Brexit's causing a lot of problems in general because, you know, customers in Europe are just getting sent bills for VAT and, and duty that are more than the cost of the T-shirts that they're buying from us. I think John Lewis stopped EU uh, orders, mm -hmm. you know, cut off all their European sales. Uh, whilst not wanting to be one of those people who moans, you know, I think it's absurd. Uh, I mean, I had Professor Anthony Grayling on my podcast and he's like seemingly obsessed with overturning the result of Brexit. You know, I think that's a bit weird. Like, get over it. And I'm saying that business that's, you know, losing money as a result of Brexit. I just think we've got to move past Brexit now and just yes. get on with it. Uh, yeah. But at the same time, it is pretty annoying. Like, I'm struggling to see, you know, what the particular point of it was other than to get uh, everybody to have a great big argument with each other for about five years. Yeah, very. I, I was really sad to see it happen, uh, but it's happened, and I guess we just have to uh, live with it at least for a, a while and really understand what it means. And then, if we decide that it uh, wasn't a good idea, then hopefully there'll be less division and acrimony because the the arguments will be obvious. Um, starting up a fashion brand pretty challenging, I imagine, and it sounded like you were close to giving up. How did how did Nigel Olsen make a difference in your trajectory? Well, I love that music. Uh, I've been obsessed with it. And he's the drummer for Elton John, just yeah. in case people yeah, unlike well, you and I are, are not completely obsessed by Elton John, which I am. But uh, Well, I'm glad to hear that. You're obviously a man of, of taste, uh, Steve. <laughs> you know, I always forget uh, that people... Uh, don't know the the other members or a lot of people don't know the other members of Elton's band because in my mind these guys should be as celebrated and I genuinely believe they should be as celebrated as members of Fleetwood Mac, Eagles, uh, you know Beatles even. These are some of the greatest popular musicians of all time. Nigel Olsen, Davy Johnstone, the late great Dee Murray. Uh, I'm very passionate about about this as, as you can tell uh, and yeah. in fact, I think uh, back in the day a few years ago when I used to excitedly pitch uh, the press sort of saying, oh, well, Nigel Olsen's wearing my, like, you know, Chino brand, uh, thinking that people would be like, oh, Nigel Olsen, that's pretty cool. Uh, I remember uh, being somewhat depressed when I went on Twitter to discover a bunch of people kind of slagging me off saying, uh, oh, he's that Elton John's drummer guy, weird. Uh, you know, I don't think people get it. But uh, Nigel is a great uh, drummer, and he helped turn uh, things around in the sense that... Uh, I was obsessed with the Elton John band. I was spending more time drinking and listening to Elton John than I was working on my business. Uh, we were in uh, Los Angeles uh, with uh, my brother celebrating his 21st. And I just had this moment where I was like, all right, I'm going to email the Nigel Olsen fan club, offer him a free pair of trousers. And, you know, hopefully I can meet him as a result. And he replied and, and we ended up starting this kind of thing where we made him clothing to wear on tour. Uh, and we it started off by going backstage on, at a couple of shows just to say hi and we got on well and so it's evolved into a great friendship uh going for dinner you know occasionally and, and catching up and uh he's just such a a wonderful guy you know he's such a nice person as well as being genuinely you know even if he'd just even if we just had a bit of awkward chit chat about the the trousers before one of the gigs and then never met again you know i would have still thought what a gentleman uh, but it's been one of the best uh, things to ever happen to me uh, to make friends with such a great musician. And then recently this year, I had David Johnstone, um, Elton's guitarist, on my podcast twice, which was great because when it comes to meeting up with Nigel, I don't want to pester him and say, uh, you know, oh, can I meet Davey? Oh, can I meet Elton? I mean, I would never in a million years ask him whether I can meet Elton. You know, I've invited Elton onto the podcast separately, but I would never go through uh, Nigel. Um, I'm... Huh to get Elton on I think uh hopefully you know before he retires or whatever he will come on because I I think I could do a better job at interviewing him than perhaps some of the people who do uh when I see it whenever I see him on like the one show or yeah. even Howard Stern I just thought the the interviewing was crap and we learned nothing new yeah it's such an interesting uh person and just going back to your point about the musicianship of that band you read about the 
early albums that were made, Honky Chateau and things like that. And it was clearly uh, a very spontaneous, rapid process. It wasn't like, here, guys, I've written this stuff. Here's your part. Here's your part. It was collaborative. Uh, so that if you love those early albums, which I think most Elton John fans uh, do, it was like he was in his absolute prime. Then the, they're the product of uh, of that amazing ensemble that he uh, brought together. And uh, I actually have a ticket to see him at uh, Dodger Stadium. I think it's his penultimate oh, concert wow. in the tour. I'm uh, really, really looking forward to it. I, I saw him in Vegas, and I think you saw him in Vegas. And I have to say, I was a little disappointed. You know, he's someone that, since Captain Fantastic came out, uh, I have been a devoted fan of. And it was a bit of a lean back, uh, comfy seat experience. And I, I kind of wanted the uh, the stadium experience, the kind of high energy, everyone standing up thing. And so I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully getting a bit of that from uh, from well, the stadium. The thing is, you know, it, even in the 90s, the crowds at Elton gigs used to stand up. Uh, it used to be a bit trendier then, uh, ever since I started going, 2010. I mean, when I started going, it was the Nadir, if there ever was such a thing, but it, it was one of the low points of his career when I went in 2010. He, you know, he wasn't cool at all. He, his, he was falling down to playing, and these are huge numbers, but for Elton, who's a superstar, it's not that great. Like, he was playing like 8,000, 9,000, 10,000. He was playing weird places as well like places literally in the middle of nowhere. I loved it. I thought that the show then was musically better than it is now. He played for longer. His band were awesome. And they're still awesome. They're the same same guys apart from Bob Birch, who sadly passed away. Uh, but the, like the graphics in the background were all a bit crap. Uh, mm. Like there was no tech. There was no, it was just a bunch of like 70s guys wearing really cool clothing and just playing great and all 100% live, no backing tracks. And the essence of it is still the same. What's changed in the interim, the reason why they're in Dodger Stadium is Rocketman has come out. David Furnish has become manager and he's done a very, very good job at making Elton a proper A-list pop star celebrity again. You know, Elton, all his peers, you wouldn't see kind of Don Henley or Bob Dylan kind of mixing with Lady Gaga and Dua Lipa and doing all these award shows and being so public facing. But Elton's Spotify streaming numbers and the fact he's playing stadiums again, um, it, it shows that maintaining this kind of celebrity status has really helped uh, his career. So uh, yeah, the Vegas stuff was comfy seats and he was playing smaller arenas. The Dodger Stadium will hopefully be, yeah, hopefully it will be a more raucous affair. But I have to say yeah. that it's it's a lot of the people at these gigs the devoted fan base is still the same uh the it, a lot of it is like people keen to see a celebrity i don't think you like when i went i saw him in luca um in italy in a couple of years before he had played inside the walls uh, at the luca festival like most people do that fits about five or six thousand people uh when i saw him next they had to move it outside because there were 25,000 people who wanted tickets. They had to play outside of Luca just to accommodate all the demand. And, you know, let me tell you, you know, people were not humming along to burn down the mission. Uh, a lot of people were asleep in the middle of the concert that I saw. Uh, these are people yeah. who just wanted to see Crocodile Rock and Rocket Man. Uh, they weren't yeah. there for the, for the jams. They weren't there for like a 12-minute version of Levon. But in my mind, he's still, him and the band kill it. So um, any prospect of getting Ray Cooper on your podcast, do you think? Yeah, yeah that, that that looks like it could be a goer. Uh, at one stage, I thought it was a definite goer. They were like, oh, we're yeah. just looking for a date. And then they were saying, um, you know, Ray would rather do this when they're back on tour. Uh, so, I mean, fingers crossed. I mean, I'm keen to get, I, I've been trying to sort of, I mean, it's not been half-hearted because I really do mean it, but I was trying to get people behind a campaign to get them inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because it's something that both Nigel and Davey have sort of expressed that they would like. They want yes. to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, like the E Street Band. They should be. I, well, I, I, quite, I quite agree. I've tr I, so I've tried a little bit to kind of encourage that. Uh, so it'd be good to get Ray Cooper on just, you know, not that he needs like a podcast to boost his profile, but it'd be good to have something up on YouTube, like a good interview with him because there's not many. It, it, 
Exactly. So he's an he's an enigma, and he's just a fascinating character on stage. I mean, the guy is just so full of energy, and uh, I'd love to just learn a bit more about him as a person, which is why I really enjoyed your interview with uh, with Nigel. And you talked about him as being a gentleman, and and he, I mean, he dresses like a gentleman. I mean, that he he turned it out very nicely for your uh, interview with him. I have to say, yeah, he's a that very nice, dapper uh... man. That was a nice made in Portugal uh, Tom Cridland custom suit that he was wearing there. Uh, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was. It, I mean, it, it's not something that was available on our website. We just make totally custom stuff uh, for, for Nigel. Uh, we're just making a bunch of stuff right now in London uh, that's being resized where he's got some custom embroidery. We've done some custom embroidery um, of a single because obviously I'm quite a fan of Nigel's solo stuff as well you, you know Nigel in the 70s had had a few hits and made some albums with some huge people playing on it you know like Lee Sklar played on bass David Foster was a producer on Nigel Olsen's solo records before David Foster was like the biggest producer in the world uh, and uh, he did a cover that Elton played on and the Elton band played on so it was effectively the 1973-74 golden era uh, it was like an Elton John record but Nigel takes lead vocals and the rest of them play it's called Only One Woman and it's actually a cover of a Bee Gees song. Uh, and because uh, I was throwing around ideas to put on the back of the thing. So it's got embroidery of only one woman on the back. And then another one's got Nigel Olsen drum orchestra and chorus, which was like an album that he did in 1971, which was, you know, that was around the time where Elton wasn't big enough yet for him to sort of say in interviews that he was going to be doing it for the rest of his life. Around that mm -hmm. stage, it seems that he was sort of like, oh, this is amazing. I love Elton. You know, hopefully I won't just always be known as Elton John's drummer. Like, I want to do my own thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's amazing when you read interviews like that and you see how things have, have evolved. And I think the band now, uh, they seem like very modest guys, you know. Like, That's right. Absolutely. Very uh, not uh, self-obsessed. I have to say, um, I mean... I'd be fascinated to know how you got Cliff Richard on your podcast. Uh, uh, but uh, Cliff, who is a super interesting guy, he's uh, uh, just a, a major pivotal figure in the history of uh, popular music in, in the UK. Um, um, but, you know, very kind of... Int he was, I think... Uh, Self-obsessed is, is a little too critical, but he was just very uh, conscious of his himself and uh, not self-conscious, but conscious of himself. Whereas, you know, you know, I look at uh, uh, who else was I listening to that I really liked? Um, Gary Kemp from Spandau Ballet, super entertaining, very uh, thinking about other people, thinking about the industry, thinking about others. And uh, you probably don't want to say anything nasty about Cliff Richard, but uh, I don't know whether that came across to you when you were talking to him. I mean, the thing is, is that I like trying to be candid about people because, you know, like the best, one of the best podcasts. I mean, I'm always going to say the Elton John Band are my favorite podcasts because they genuinely are. That's the what I'm really interested in. But like a great example of a podcast, probably one of the more entertaining musicians who came on was David Crosby because he says what he thinks. You know, he basically said Kanye West is an asshole, Rick Rubin is an asshole. That's what you want to hear in an interview. You don't hear <laughs> boring people kind of just like just being vanilla. That's not you know that's not why with pop culture. That's pretty much what the Gallagher's made a career of. Uh, you know, Oasis didn't exactly reinvent the wheel musically. I prefer their interviews to their music. Their interviews crack me up. Uh, and and so uh, when it comes to Cliff Richard, the thing is, I bought a CD last summer of Cliff Richard's 80s stuff, like Wired for Sound, Carrie, yeah. uh, uh, Big Cheesy Ballad, Ocean Deep. Uh, there were loads of absolute bangers. You know, to be honest, it didn't actually sound, the production did not sound a million miles away from the production on the weekend's number one really trendy album, After Hours. Uh, like Cliff Richard, like in the 80s, is basically pop music of today. Uh, he is, he, he is like made a lot of absolute bangers. The problem is that Cliff uh, doesn't, you know, he doesn't think he's very cool. He's, he seems yeah. like he's very insecure. Like the fact yes. is, you know, he's cool. He's a good-looking guy. Uh, he's a Amazing. great vocalist. 
you know, he's like 80 years old. He literally looks as young. He looks younger than some of my contemporaries from uni. Uh, like, you know, I've just turned 30. He looks uh, he looks as young as me. In fact, uh, I was just coming back from Portugal and he lives in the Algarve. And there was a cardboard cutout of him advertising some Portuguese wine that I found quite funny. So I took a little selfie next to it and put it on Instagram. And a lot of people said, you know, Cliff look, Cliff's cutout looks uh, younger than you, mate. Uh, <laughs> he, he looks great. I, th I think, you know, uh, he, he shoots himself in the foot a little bit sometimes. Um, I, I find him a fascinating character, Cliff Richard. You know, that's like he's made some bad stuff. Uh, yeah. There's some pretty terrible uh records uh like there was i think there was a mashup of what a wonderful world with mashed up with something awful like i think what a wonderful world mashed up with somewhere over the rainbow and the yeah. music video is cliff flying through london or something it's it's <laughs> it's, it's like laughably bad but in general i think he's really cool i think he's made some absolute bangers yeah, I mean, when you have a career that, that is that long, I mean, what an incredible industry, a very challenging industry to try and stay relevant in. You're going to throw yourself in the arms of people creatively who who maybe you, you shouldn't have done, but you can't deny his uh, talent and you can't deny his role in, you know, the, the quote that uh, the uh, John Lennon quote uh, that, you know, it, it started with him. Uh, it started with Cliff. Uh, you can't get a better endorsement than that, can you? No, um, Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I, I knew this was going to happen. I've just drawn into like a magnet to talking about... Um, uh, about music. And this is supposedly a podcast about the Internet of Things. And, and one might ask, what the heck has sustainable fashion got to do with IoT? But I think there's a lot. And I, I think it's there's some technology and um, there's some business reasons for the overlap. And uh, before I join Willie Ott, which is um, the, the people that, uh, that's my day job, the people that, uh, that, that allow me to do this, um, semiconductor company, cloud uh, sensing as a service company. Um, I started a, a company called Cause-Based Solutions. And the premise was, you know, we should try and find ways of making a profit that actually make the world better. Uh, and that way, everyone has more fun. We can feel better about it. And, and rather than, you know, giving back being virtue signaling, it can be a way to make a living. And that really will be sustainable and uh, positive thing. And I really feel like um, there's an opportunity with sustainable fashion on its own. But I think when you start to bring some of the technology that we're working on, which is essentially a, a computer the size of a postage stamp, it uh, powers itself by recycling, by harvesting radio frequency energy, suddenly you can give a, put intelligence in clothing and identity. And one might reasonably ask, why the heck would you want to do that? It's clothing should be about texture and fiber and uh, feel and color and cut and uh, all these things. But um, I do believe that technology has something to offer for uh, circularity and uh, 
the Sustainability Consortium recently did a study where they tried to look at how often people wear something. And if you think about it, we have some fundamental problems with fashion. Uh, one is people make fashion and they don't know whether people like it or not. They know, obviously, you know if people buy it and you'll have seen, hopefully, eventually, I, well, you probably won't see it, but I did buy your, um, uh, uh, your red, one of your red sweatshirts and I think I'm going to like it, but let's face it, neither of us knows whether I will do. And unless we keep in touch, you won't know if I wore it once and then thought it was a terrible mistake or if it becomes, <laughs> you know, part of my weekly rotation, favorite thing, and I wear it for the next 30 years. So I believe that bringing IoT, uh, this kind of postage stamp, sustainable, battery-free computing integrated in for pennies into the care label will allow, um, with the appropriate permissions by the wearer, some people won't want to do this, some pe people will. If, if the wearer is interested in having a relationship with the designer, then that designer will know, oh, this person's been wearing this constantly and we did a good job, or, ah, oh, there was, obviously there's, there's something wrong. And in, in the unhappy circumstance where the wearer doesn't like the thing, but maybe others will, they have a way of certifying, oh, I only washed this once. And, uh, you know, this is the provenance. Uh, and uh, maybe wardrobes can be a little bit more like Uber or Lyft than, uh, than the kind of the old model of you buy it and that's it. You can have kind of more of a uh, fluid movement of clothing through your wardrobe and the clothing can find the person that loves it. And maybe they'll be happy together. I'm sort of talking about subscriptions to clothing, rental of clothing. And, you know, I think one of the things that stops people buying more, certainly in my case, is my wardrobe's full. I've got no space to put stuff. And if we had a better mechanism for uh, adding some intelligence to clothing so that you understood um, what you like, and you had a easy mechanism for getting money back and finding a home for the things that maybe aren't a good fit. Maybe it's a great item of clothing, but someone else would uh, appreciate it. And so I think that's where that's where the opportunity is, and the building blocks to make this crazy idea happen are, are actually pretty close to hand. Uh, washing machines now have Bluetooth and Wi-Fi in, they can energize and read these tags. And so clothing can communicate how often it's uh, washed, which would be of direct interest to someone that's thinking about buying it and giving it a, a second home. And I think, you know, ultimately when clothing gets to the end of its life, one of the challenges with recycling, which is kind of the last resort for clothing, it's much better to find another home for it, less wasteful. Then um, there's a future um, uh, where the waste disposal companies, uh, waste management in this country, in, in the US, do a much better job of recycling because there's a digital identity that can be easily read and you know that clothing can be disassembled and... Um, uh, and and recycled more appropriately. So that's my little soapbox moment talking about how IoT and fashion can come together. I'd be interested in any thoughts you have on that. Uh, be you know, be brutal. Uh, there's, there's a lot there. Uh, I'm very very interested in, in the idea of clothing subscriptions for one. Yes. Clothing rental. I mean, clothing rental makes so much sense especially considering the price of some things that you would only want to wear a couple of times or you really will only have the opportunity to wear uh, it, particularly expensive stuff like there's some stuff that I, I see that I just think god I would love to wear that to a party and stuff and then I mean well the coronavirus hasn't been ideal but you know how many parties do you go to a year you know maybe at best if you've got a very full social calendar it's going to be like 50 a year but like realistically it ain't 50 a year it's like five to ten uh maybe uh so you know and and of those like what are they gonna be like what are those parties gonna be how often are you gonna be able to wear something flashy so clothing rental or like weddings for example 
you know if you get invited to a wedding and it's like summer suits well i don't have like a linen suit at the moment you know i had a bad one that i got made in vietnam that like mm -hmm. a bit kind of crap really it's not being cut very well uh i would love to go to this wedding because it's uh, going to be a swanky wedding at the weekend uh i would love to go wearing like a nice you know proper uh linen suit but do i want to spend 600 pounds 700 pounds on that hmm, maybe not if i could rent rent a really good one for 100 quid that would be very interesting and i guess it would kind of be more sustainable as well totally. and then in terms of uh technology uh technology in clothing uh i i've seen that a lot of companies uh are doing things where you can track the supply chain with little chips um and all of that stuff that's really interesting uh and I, I would absolutely I would sign up right away. Uh, I just don't have the budget at the moment. Uh, yeah, the minute, yeah. The minute I do, you know, I would love, like, I, I see companies like Pangea spoke. I've talked about these guys. There are other companies. Uh, I mean, Harry's uh, shaving company was a quite a big inspiration for the kind of way that I wanted to do things. That's, of course, a subscription-based company, uh, as it should be, you know, for, for shaving stuff. But the point is that, a lot of these companies have have just have more budget more uh opportunity than i do so i'm working within quite a restricted uh framework in terms of what i can make possible but there are a lot of great ideas and that that technology tracking stuff in your clothing uh for the supply chain for where it might end up that's pretty revolutionary i i agree and, and i'm really glad you mentioned the supply chain because uh you know we uh we're getting to a point where we're sufficiently funded where we actually talk to we have a pr company and they're like don't talk about what's gonna happen in the home because you're gonna freak people out but it's actually the supply chain bit it's the bit between the the mill uh where the fabric is made um and uh and the store that has so much room for improvement uh, there's a lot of clothing that is just dumped because um, because too much was made. Uh, and then, you know, um, getting the right piece of apparel in the right store is, is a nightmare. If you're a brand, you have zero visibility, typically, of um, the inventory in the wholesale channel. You, you, you get kind of this uh, bulk purchase from you. But Imagine a world where you get a real-time view of um, the inventory levels in every store that's stocking your apparel. And you know, one of the biggest obstacles to selling something is if it's out of stock, if it's not there. And God forbid someone nicks one of your items of clothing, then you know, let's say there's a really great suit that you make, um, and it's not selling. Uh, you know, it's not selling in Regent Street. The Regent Street stores should be selling it. And it's like, oh, they obviously don't like the suit. No, they love it. And people stole it. And the inventory system didn't get updated. If you have a digital ID that's associated with the apparel and brands can actually be omniscient, if they can see what's in stock in um, in the different stores, then they have an opportunity to to, to make less stuff but actually have more of it in stock and sell more of it and have less uh, returns, uh, less wastage there. And, and I actually think this is a fundamental part of how we address climate change is by cutting um, capital employed in inventory by 10 or 20%. Let's make 10 or 20% less stuff. Um, uh, what would that do to the environment if um, we made 10 or 20% less stuff and then compound on that what happened? What would happen if people actually bought, spent exactly the same amount they are, but bought less stuff? They bought the um, they bought the six hundred pound suit, the thousand dollar suit, and then when they started to grow out of it, as some of us do, uh, they it finds another home, and then they have the money to buy another great uh, suit. This is uh, this is the future that I believe in, anyway. So um, thanks for giving me a good excuse to to pontificate about it i appreciate it no no I, I i really share that that view i think that that is the way forward i i don't see the appeal of the way that a lot of people uh, are currently doing things i think it's just easier isn't it and 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 also the technology that's making this possible is only just uh, uh you know coming into its own uh, rfid uh, has been around for a while but the infrastructure was super expensive and this 
battery-free Bluetooth stuff that we're investing in uh, is, is very new. So I think it's going to happen. Uh, we have, uh, if I look at our customer base, we've got over 30 of the largest companies in the world that are in our early adopter program. And uh, four of them are fashion companies, uh, which is amazing. So we have like pharmaceutical companies, CPG companies, but we have some amazing brands that, that I think see it. And it's going to take some of these giants to move it, to get an ecosystem in place, um, which I think has to work across companies. If you're going to have wardrobe management, it can't be Versace wardrobe management. How many, you know, that doesn't make sense. You want something that works across Hugo Boss, Versace, uh, LVMH, you know. uh, um, And then that's a platform where entrepreneurs, boutique designers can slot in and they can can put in the, the, the hooks that it'll be like the app store, but for clothing. It'll be like Netflix, but for clothing. And you have big artists and small artists that are making stuff for Netflix. And I think that's that's the way it's going to go, personally. Very good. Let's get back to music. Um, how did you get Cliff Richard on your show? Well, uh, it was at the stage where it was going to be a one-off podcast. So it was going to be, you know, just a one-off series of the greatest artists of all time, uh, as, yeah. as many of the initial ones were going to be. And, uh, you know, I was as surprised as anyone when a lot of these people agreed to come on the podcast. Uh, but, yeah, it was amazing. Uh, it was amazing to talk to him. And I think he's exactly the type of person who doesn't give that many in-depth interviews like this who would do well uh, to do more of them because yes he is a very interesting guy uh i'd love I to, wanted do, to like, hear more from him I, I was like okay we got warmed up we got the the perfunctory stuff out of the way let's get into more of the depths and yeah, tell the story I'd, of given album hour. and uh, yeah i'd love to do a three-hour one i'd love to do like a joe rogan experience with cliff richard yes. you know yes give him a glass of Quinta de, you know, Carmel or whatever, uh, Portuguese wine and, you know, maybe a spliff like Elon Musk <laughs> week on, the, uh, on, on the Joe Rogan podcast. We could have Cliff Richards smoke, you know, smoking weed and really like letting, <laughs> telling us what he thinks about the BBC. I, I would have enjoyed to really get, uh, you know, get uh you know get down to uh, brass tacks with him but he uh sadly you know only had an hour but that was pretty good as far as cliff richard interviews go amazing and what about annie lennox isn't she a wonderful person i i, yeah. I think she is i i'm gonna again pontificate a bit but i you know my the zenith of my musical experience was when i ran um the college radio station back uh uh, back in the 80s and it was a, a, a wonderful thing I got to hang out with people that knew a lot about jazz and punk and all the stuff that was going on we got a lot of white labels but probably the peak of campus radio Hatfield's <laughs> uh, um, uh, resurgence in the uh, early 80s was when Annie Lennox agreed to be interviewed by us and uh Wow. Uh, I didn't interview her, unfortunately. We um, uh, It was before I was in charge, and so I didn't get to kind of elbow other people out of the way and rush down with a microphone. There was some very, very nervous person uh, who'd never interviewed anyone famous before, and we kind of sent him down to interview her, and he just completely froze. I mean, he literally became incoherent and couldn't talk, and she... <laughs> interviewed herself she she literally said well you're probably wanting to know about uh, uh you know how we're feeling about the fact that we've got a number one and because you know they she didn't agree to come to campus radio hatfield when uh, when their uh, whatever it was sweet dreams was at number one they were like um uh, you know a uh, an emerging band and they ended up at campus radio Hatfield and she could rightly have been very arrogant and obnoxious and uh, kind of brushed off this uh, chap whose knees were knocking, but she was, it was a great interview and she did it all on her own on, on autopilot. So did you get that impression when you talked to her? I, 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 I think she comes over as being super nice. Yeah. She was very, very uh, pleasant to talk to. I thought, yeah, it was it was a great interview. I feel like uh, again that one could have gone on for longer. I mean, I often feel like they could have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
you're a very um, uh, multi-dimensional uh, uh, artist. So uh, as well as interviewing artists, you actually play. Um, um, uh, uh, tell us about the tour that's coming up. So I'm opening for the Stylistics uh, across about 20 dates uh, and starting end of October, finishing early December. And yeah, I mean, that's a huge honor. It's pretty difficult, to be honest with you, to try and make the type of music that I really like. Uh, no one listens to it on TikTok or on Spotify or anywhere, you know, that type of old school 70s sound. I mean, uh, by July the 17th, on July the 17th, the rest of the music that I've recorded will be out. It's called the One Single a Week box set. So basically, back in 2019, I decided I'm giving up everything to only focus on writing, recording, playing live. I'm just going to drop everything else and follow the rock and roll dream. Uh, and I manically wrote and recorded over 100 songs, uh, drawing on my many years of musical obsession, and then uh, did a 48-state tour of the US. I played every single state, every single contiguous state in two months with a band, and that caught the attention of the Stylistics. Then coronavirus happened, the tour with the Stylistics got postponed to now, and I realised that I'm going to need to keep everything going, and I realised I want to keep everything going, I want to do my clothing I want to do other business stuff. I want to do my podcast, etc. I can't just make music because it's not possible. You can't support yourself. And also you drive yourself mad if you're only focused on something like music that you love too much. Mm. It becomes a chore rather than a pleasure. But I did, we did, and uh, with a lot of extraordinarily talented musicians, I put together over a hundred songs, wrote a hundred songs, recorded them. And, uh, uh, people have really like I sent sent the link to a few people, uh, a couple of people to review, and uh, you, you know I think people have been pretty knocked out. I've been really happy with uh, the response to because it's been a bit underwhelming. This music was initially planned for release in 2019, but I didn't have the scope to finish the vocals for uh, over 100 songs. You know it was very mm -hmm. crazy manic to try and put that amount of stuff together. So finally releasing it all finished, mixed, mastered, uh, like I'm not mucking around songs you know these are songs real music played by real players uh original stuff um a lot of it quite 70s quite inspired by elton and all of that type of thing mm -hmm. uh and yeah i think i think a lot of people who like that sort of thing will be very interested in it and hopefully you know going on to all the stylistics will help promote it so uh will you do any elton covers in your set or or just going to be things from uh, 20s midlife crisis is that the one of your albums uh, oh yeah yeah midlife crisis in your 20s that's the new yeah. uh, that's my new album but again that album is basically just take i've taken like 15 random songs from that 100 songs and i never really made a cohesive album as a result because uh, i basically recorded 100 songs in loads of different genres uh, a lot of like melody ideas come from that Elton school of thought, but lots of different production on this stuff. Uh, yeah, I'll play some Elton uh, to answer your question more succinctly. Uh, I, you know, alongside doing my own music, I I also have this band, Tom Cridland's Elton John band, uh, because Elton's retiring. Someone needs to keep this great music alive, and so yeah. you know, I, I'm you know putting myself forward to be one of those people uh, to continue to play those uh, those good tunes. Uh, because I've spent, uh, if, if if nothing else, you know, I've already done my 10,000 hours of dedication to, to this uh, craft. You, you you have. I mean, it's, it's I, I, I hate to ask the or make the point that's been probably made ad nauseum, but for someone of your age, you have an encyclopedic knowledge of a genre that took place even, I guess, before you were born, if I think about it. But uh, how did that happen? What, what, what turned you on to... To become such an expert in this uh, era that predates your birth? Uh, well, I was first of all obsessed with the Beatles. So I was equally obsessed with the Beatles uh, and, and like all stuff that derives from the Beatles, like all of their solo stuff or the like Jeff Lynne uh, production. Oh, another amazing artist. Yeah. Uh, incredible. Uh, yeah. And like Tom Petty, the Wilburys, just anything Beatles-y. Uh, I was really obsessed with that, but then I, I'm, I've always been obsessed with with uh, pop culture and media and all that stuff. And you know, I, I listen to modern music. I love Dave, uh, the uh, the UK uh, rapper who plays piano, and it's just extraordinary. He, he's 
amazing. Uh, but the seventies became like after the Beatles became my second like deep deep love and Elton's music, Elton John band. Uh, I just love studying that stuff. I'm interested in the personalities and the stories. I haven't actually spent enough time on the music. I only got into actually making music 2019. Uh, uh, before that, my first ever thing was the Tomics 2018. I played drums and sang, played a hundred gigs uh, around England in pubs, and then we got booked to play a hotel in LA. So we we played some. We did free records as a band, and I was the like singing drummer. Then 2019, I did my own solo stuff. Uh, but that was like, that's all I've done music-wise myself. I'm not I'm not trained. I taught myself drums. Now I've switched to teaching myself piano uh, and singing at the same time. So, you know, I haven't been playing piano since I was three. I didn't go to Royal Academy or anything. You know, I'm I'm winging it to a large extent, uh, but I'm I'm getting I'm getting there. Uh, and then I'm going to go out and I'm going to play a hell of a lot of gigs. Uh, to, to really cement um, that knowledge. And will you be coming back to the US? Oh yeah, definitely. Early early 2022 is when I plan on going to the US next. To be honest, I would actually uh, flee the UK and go to America sooner, but I've got this stylistics tour, so I'm going to prepare with some warm-up gigs in Portugal uh, just to get like really comfortable uh, playing and singing. And then do the tour in the UK. Uh, I mean, I could just sing, you know, but I don't need mm. to play piano at the same time, uh, having only started it last year. Like last year, I couldn't even tell you what middle C was. Uh, so to be playing and singing like Elton John's material and like, we're going to do Funeral for a Friend and we're, you know, we're not oh, gonna, amazing. We're not going to do uh, just like I'm Still Standing or stuff like that. So it, this is going to be a lot of work. Uh, well, it is. It's been a lot of work, but now I'm really winding down doing anything else other than practicing uh, because I need to. <laughs> I need to get in shape. Yeah. And well, it must give you an incredible affinity with the artist to be so familiar with that music. I mean, I I am unfortunately uh, a music uh, wannabe. I, I can't play a note, but just uh, doing the like uh, garage band, not garage band, um, uh, guitar hero type stuff. Just doing that. And, 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 you know, starting to, I, I remember, uh, I can't remember, the, 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 one of the Rolling Stones uh, um, kind of terribly long tracks, oh, which had a better memory. But uh, I remember drumming to that on one of those games and, and it really made you listen. It made you listen to the, the, uh, the complexities of, of, of the music and, and suddenly you get a new appreciation when you're, you're actually trying to reproduce what someone else has done, and you're actually reproducing it in a way that uh, I think is is pretty compelling. So that must bring you closer to the artist, I imagine. Mm, absolutely, and I was very interested in studying the intricacies of this music uh, earlier because uh, I noticed the way that he improvises every single show differently. The piano parts and the vocal parts are always slightly different. Uh, it's because he's just insanely talented, and so are his band. They yeah. it's they don't labor over this stuff. Like he wouldn't need to practice all summer like me to get in shape for a gig. Apparently he's not even played the piano during this lockdown and he's just signed up to like a hundred stadium shows and he'll nail it. This is a guy who's 75 years old. He's so overweight, he can barely walk. Uh, and he is that good live. He plays for nearly three hours. He doesn't need to think when he plays. It's, that's what it seems like. He's just that talented. Well, and his ability to compose, I, I think he was on Oprah and someone, he they threw a book out to the audience, someone read a few lines and he composed around that. That was, uh, that was just uh, uh, incredible, that, uh, that yeah. ability. Extraordinary. Well, Tom, thanks so much for giving up a bit of your day to, uh, to talk. It's been an eclectic conversation, um, uh, but hopefully... Um, uh, hopefully one that people will find interesting and I certainly found it interesting and I uh, appreciate the chance to talk with you. No, I really appreciate the chance to talk with you. It's been uh, the high point of the day. Uh, and uh, yeah, hopefully uh, we can meet in person in uh, in America. A absolutely. Um, if William continues to do well, maybe we'll have a, a corporate gig on the deck of the Midway and your band can uh, play and uh, entertain awesome. everyone. That's, that, that would be, uh, that's, that's uh, what I aspire to. 
Very good. I'm looking forward to uh, getting my uh, red uh, sweatshirt. So uh, keep it up. Congratulations. Thank you so much, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. Take care. (laughs) All the best. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Tom. He's a remarkable person. Uh, An amazing podcast. Over 400 interviews with incredible musicians. Uh, but also a purposeful uh, business with his sustainable fashion line. I hope you found that as interesting as I did. Please do um, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, uh, like us on uh, whatever the platform. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Platform is that you're using to listen or watch this podcast, review us. Uh, we thank you for your support. If you have been, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.